and um, sort of reflect a bit on that uh, reading from J John chapter 21. And the, the first thing I want you to imagine in your mind is just the day surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. It's a Thursday night, and uh, there's the Last Supper happening, and Jesus is having this meal of the Passover with his 12 closest friends. And um, in the midst of that, Jesus drops a bit of a bombshell. And he says, one of you in this room will betray me, and everybody else will desert me. And as you can imagine, in the midst of a dinner party, even a, a, a Passover celebration, that's a bit of a bombshell. And so they go out with heavy hearts up the Mount of Olives, up to a garden they all are familiar with called the Garden of Gethsemane, a place of quietness and silence and beauty and serenity. And they go up there and imagine it's a bit of a long trek with heavy hearts reflecting on the words of Jesus. And then as Jesus has predicted, out of the shadows comes Judas, and he brings with him a detachment of soldiers from the temple, and uh, they arrest Jesus. There's a bit of a skirmish, uh, but ultimately Jesus is taken away, and the disciples flee. Jesus endures the mockery of a trial, and uh, Peter uh, is in the outer courtyard with another disciple, and he warms himself with the fire. He denies Jesus three times, even the fact that he has known him at all. The next day, Jesus is crucified. His body is laid in the tomb. And on then the Sabbath, the Saturday, uh, exactly the same, Simon Peter is nowhere to be seen. Sunday morning, everything changes, and Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Jesus, a man who was dead, who is now alive, proof that God is powerfully at work, that God has hit the restart button on creation through Jesus Christ, that sins are forgiven, there's a fresh start, and everything has changed. And then Jesus appears in the upper room, uh, a locked room, and the disciples are there, and he comes and stands among them, and only Thomas, Didymus, the twin, isn't there. And uh, I sometimes wonder, I was really reflecting this this morning, I sort of wonder, you know, I wonder if you're a twin and you see someone who is dead and they're alive and you know that it's possible to have two people who are identical. And I just wonder, is that, was that part of Thomas's issue? That's just a random thought that came to me this morning. Um, I say it because I remember years ago at a holiday Bible club, there were uh, a friend of mine who's a minister and uh, he is an identical twin. And uh, they ha ran this holiday Bible club, did the Easter story. And in the Easter story, they had the crucifixion in drama. And they took my friend down off the cross and, and put a sheet over him. And all the children, hundreds of children were gathered around. And then his twin brother <laughs> came, in, came in the door and everyone, he's risen. All the children's mouths went boom <laughs> and dropped at that point. And um, so, anyway, uh, back, to, back to where we were. And um, so, a week later then, Jesus reappears again in the upper room. It's locked, and this time Thomas is there. Jesus says, touch my hand, touch my sides, stop darting and believe. And then after that, there's these days of silence. There's this sort of sense of well, what's happening now. We read in Scripture that over the course of six weeks, Jesus appeared to about 500 disciples, different times, different places. Uh, but in those days, following those two 
occasions when Simon Peter has seen Jesus, there's, they, they get up, they have a day, they go to bed, and they, want, they wonder where Jesus is. They know that everything has changed, and yet I imagine what happens is people look towards Simon Peter for leadership. And I imagine the thought that is going around Simon's mind is this, that sort of sense of this is amazing. He, he was dead and he's alive. He called me to be a fisher of men, but how can I lead people to be a fisher of men when I have failed him? When I denied him, I even knew him three times. I, I, that I'm the biggest failure, therefore how can I lead these people around me? And I wonder if that was right in the midst of his frustration, as Simon Peter says, and I, I sort of suspect that the tension, he couldn't take it any longer, and I, I could just imagine him standing up and saying, I'm going fishing. And six other disciples in the room say, I'll go with you. And I wonder what's going through their minds, and I wonder for Simon Peter if he's thinking, you know what I'm going to do, because I'm not sure what to do, and these people are looking at me in this room, looking for leadership, because Jesus is, Jesus is alive, but we're not sure where he is right now, but we're not sure what we're meant to do. And uh, I'm going to do the thing that I think I can do, I think I'm competent at, and that is I'm going to fish. And so he runs out of Jerusalem, back down to Lake Galilee, and he takes these six other men out on a fishing boat at night. Uh, he knows how to fish, he thinks. He said, at least I know how to take and lead men to catch fish. And so he takes them out, I imagine, to the best places he knows very well. He's an experienced fisherman. He takes them out at the best time at night. Uh, when the fish are coming up to the surface to feed, and he thinks, you know, I'll I'll take these men out and we'll do something constructive with our time. And yet it comes to the, the dawn is breaking, they're heading back in towards the shore, and they've caught absolutely nothing. The nets are empty, no sardines, no sprats, it's empty. And then there's a figure on the shore and a voice, and I can just imagine Jesus having a wry smile on his face, and he calls out, friends! Haven't you caught any fish? No. Throw your net out on the right side and you'll catch some. I was having a conversation, a coffee break there with a gentleman who's a 10 o'clock service, and he said, if I was in the boat, in North, a Northern Ireland fisherman, I would have been thinking, I right. Look, we've been out all night here. There's no fish out here. There's no fish to be caught. And I can imagine they wouldn't necessarily say, oh, let's do exactly what the guy on the shore says. But in a level of humility, they throw out the net onto the right side of the boat. And the thing, boom, all of a sudden, is completely filled with fish, so much so that the net, large fish, the whole thing begins to break. Or it looks as if it's going to break, but it doesn't break. John, the disciple, recognizes something supernatural is happening here. He says, it's the Lord. And Simon Peter displays that wonderful passion that I think is right at the heart of just why the Lord has called him to lead his church. And he says, uh, he throws out a garter garment on him, and he's not waiting for the boat to get to shore. He wants to get there first. He's in the water, and he's heading for the shore. And so, the second, second scene I want you to think about is, here's the disciples, seven of them, sitting with the Son of God, 
who has made breakfast for them. I'm sure it smells delicious and tastes delicious. It's barbecued fish and bread. They're hungry. I imagine they're tired. But Jesus has this lovely fire to warm them. And also as well, he has this delicious breakfast for them. And they eat together, and there's fish everywhere. There's fish in the net. There's fish that Jesus has said, bring up the fish on the shore. Uh, there's barbecued fish, and after a while, there's, I'm sure, fish bones in their teeth. There's a smell of fish. Their stomachs are full of fish. There's fish absolutely everywhere. Simon is in a setting that he knows very well. I can imagine there are many, many times over the years he's fished during the night. They bring the fish on the shore. They barbecue some fish. They have their breakfast. They go home, and I imagine they go to bed. This is a scene that Simon Peter knows very well except the fact that there's a guy who is dead, who's alive, who has cooked them breakfast on the shore. And he was trained as a carpenter, and yet he knows better than Simon Peter how to fish. And Jesus waits until after Simon Peter's stomach is full, because the best time to talk about a man, with a man about serious issues is when his stomach is full. And he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He asked the same question pretty much three times, and, Jesus, and Peter gives the same answer pretty much every time. Lord, you know that I love you. But Simon Peter, I'm sure it begins to dawn on him as he asks him three times that, that this is about restoration. The thing that is weighing heaviest on Simon Peter's heart and life is the, is the fact of his failure. The fact that he knows that in public, when faced with a young servant girl in a courtyard at a fire, was warming himself by the fire, he gets asked, does he know Jesus? Is he a follower? Does he know the Nazarene? Are you one of the disciples? Are you from Galilee? And he says, no, 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 no. I know nothing about the man whatsoever. And then the cock crowed twice, after the cock crowed for the second time. And Jesus chooses the place, again, where Simon Peter is warming himself by a fire. And he gives Simon Peter the opportunity three times to be restored. And Simon Peter realizes, I'm sure, that by this fire, with these three questions, Jesus Christ is giving him another opportunity. The thing that amazes me most, really, is, is the question that Jesus asks. If someone had, had betrayed you, if someone had deserted you, if someone had, had said, I, your closest, one of your closest friends, I, I've never met the guy, I don't know the guy. And it shows the wonderful nature of God. He doesn't come to say, how after all you've heard and all you've seen and all you've experienced of our relationship, how, how, and Jesus doesn't say any of that. He does, doesn't point the finger. He doesn't even say, you to try better next time, Simon. He asks him this vulnerable question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, that is a vulnerable question to ask because the person could easily say no.
And Simon Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, yes. But the first, the first question Jesus asks has a few extra words. The first question is, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think these are the fish that are everywhere. Do you love me more than your livelihood and the thing that you know best, the thing that you're secure in? There's fish absolutely everywhere. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You know, in our lives and in this communion service, at the heart of this opportunity is, is the recognition that God is not like us. And again and again, we fail every day, many times a day, every moment <laughs> virtually. You know, we, we don't necessarily live up to the, to the calling that God has in our lives. And so often, we're faced with that sense of, of failure in our lives, the sense of disappointment with ourselves, but the Lord doesn't want us to remain in that place because it's, it's not a good place to be. And so in His love and His mercy and His gentleness, He comes gently. He comes not to condemn. He always comes to save. He comes to restore. He comes to bring life. And one of the things He does in the midst of our failure, He, he seeks to take our eyes off our own failure. And so he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The thing about love, it's about looking away from yourself, and it's looking towards someone else. And that's the place where life is to be found. And ultimately, life itself, eternal life, is to be found in looking away from ourselves and looking towards God. And knowing the fact that he's a good, good father, and he comes in mercy and gentleness and even in vulnerability and asks us and whispers us that question. He speaks our name, do you love me? And we know that our love compared to his, his love will be small, it'll be weak, it'll be fragile, it'll be faltering. We know that His love is a burning fire. Have you ever had that sense by the Holy Spirit of encountering Jesus Christ, encountering God, and, and experiencing those burning eyes that look into your soul, and that sense of being loved and accepted by a holy, powerful, loving God? And we know that our response to that is one that is faltering and will fail and will fail and will fail. But the Lord just needs to hear those words from us. Lord, you know that I love you. And that's really what, it's really the starting point of, of the new thing that God can do in our lives. We had at the first service there, that wonderful reading from Joshua chapter 3, where they're just about to cross the Jordan River. And Joshua, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says to the people, consecrate yourselves because tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And consecration is about saying, Lord, you know that I love you. So often in these communion services as well, through the first service, we rehearse those, those words of the summary of the law of Jesus. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, 
relationship with God, when we, we boil the whole thing down, it's just all about love. His love for us, our love for Him, and our love for each other. It's as simple as that. So today, I wonder, you know, for Simon Peter, the place of familiarity was on the beach, perhaps the very beach where Jesus came walking and said at the start of his ministry, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And God brought him full circle back to this place, a barbecue on the beach, in the place of familiar surroundings. That was the familiar place for Simon Peter. The familiar place for you could be your workplace, it could be your home, it could be a coffee shop. You'll have different familiar places than Simon Peter. But here, here's the thing. Jesus chose the place that was most familiar, most secure, and he met Simon when he had a full stomach and warmed himself by the fire, and he, he met him in the midst of his brokenness and failure, and he restored him in that place. And that's the way God works. He meets us in the ordinary places, the familiar places, and he says to us, do you love me? And all he needs is for us to respond. No matter how, how faltering it may be, no matter how fragile and weak our love may be, this communion service is about us coming with empty hands and saying, Lord, I have nothing to offer, but I, I, I come to you because I trust you. I trust your love, and I love you. Shall we stand together? We're going to sing a song in a moment.